Hi, everybody. My name is Paige, and I am the Creative Arts Manager at Grace Church Barberton. Welcome to our Sunday service podcast. We are so glad that you have checked us out and you are listening. This is the live recording of our Sunday message, and we hope you are encouraged and challenged by what you hear. Let's jump into culture, cliches, and the story of God. My siblings, my parents would take us to water parks and we would just have a blast, right? During the summertime, you'd go, it'd be crazy, all the different things that would be happening, right? In a wave pool, right, it is literally just a pool and then they turn some crank and it becomes a wave pool, right? And all of a sudden these waves start to come up and they can become like ocean-sized waves and things of that nature, right? And you're in the midst of it. And so just think, right? The pool itself, while it's just a pool, there's like 20 or 30 people that get into that. Once it turns on and the wave pool action starts, like 200, 300 people start to go into it, right? It's just this like rampage of kids and students are like, yes, the wave pool, right? And literally the entire time, Time, what is happening is you're just being tossed and you're being turned and you're being thrown into people as the waves are crashing and hitting, right? And that goes on for a few minutes and it takes place for a little while and you have fun and then it settles down and then you kind of go on to the next thing and you come back to it. I remember very in particularly that, that I was the oldest sibling and so when my parents, my parents never went into it, right? You're a parent, you're like, you can go try to survive. I'm not going with you, right? So my parents would send us in and I would be responsible for my two younger siblings, which is not fun in a wave pool, right? Because as I'm being thrown around, my siblings are being thrown around, and there have been moments where I'm towards the top of where the waves are starting, and my siblings are somewhere else, right? And I'm looking back for them, I'm trying to figure out where are they and what is going on. And the reality is this, just let me know if we need to go to the handheld, okay, David, and we can make it happen from there. But the reality is this, what would often take place in a wave pool is we would be tossed and turned, we'd be thrown around, the waves would hit us in such a way that we wouldn't know where we're at until everything kind of settled for a moment or everything would kind of calm down, right? And in the world around us, that may be what your experience is, we're going to go to this. Woo, there it is, right? A wave pool is meant to toss and turn you, and in the world around you, you might be experiencing life as such. You might be living in this cultural moment and feel like you're being tossed and turned in a wave pool, right? In, in any cultural moment, the culture around us gives us stories, it gives us art, it gives us technology. It gives us all of these things that kind of tell us who we are and what life is about. That's what the culture does, and it uses different modes of doing that. And right now, you might be living inside of this cultural moment, and you might be thinking, I don't even know where to begin to start or what to think, because there's so many things that are being thrown into the wave pool of life. I'm not sure where to stand, where to sit, where to find truth in. I'm not sure what is and what isn't in the midst of all the stories that are going around. In our culture today, there are primarily two waves that are crashing into us. Two waves that are making an impact and shaking up the pool and I believe make it hard to navigate life and understand what in the world is going on. 
I love looking at the culture. I love looking at the world. I love looking at what's happening around us and kind of dissecting it a little bit and saying, what do we believe as a human being? What do we believe as a culture? What do we believe as a world? And I would say as you interact with the wave pool of life and all of these thoughts and these ideas, the technology that's moving in front, the art that's going, whatever may be taking place in the wave pool of life right now, the thoughts and the ideas, there are two waves that continually crash into us and impact how we think and what we do. The first one is individuality. Individualism is a wave that is crashing pretty hard and pretty steeply inside of our cultural moment. And the second one is spirituality. There's two waves that are defining the culture, defining the world, defining the the thinking and defining the living inside of what you are seeing. Individuality and spirituality. Because here's the reality before I dive into those two in depth. Every cultural moment has a story tied to it. Every cultural moment has a story tied to it. So when you look at the world around us and the culture and what's happening, there have been hundreds of years of this churning and taking place. We are not the first culture to look and be shocked by the things that we're seeing or wondering about or questioning about. It's not like we are the first cultural moment where a lot of these things are taking place. It is churned over time. This idea of individuality and spirituality have been something from the very beginning. And it has looked different in different cultural moments. Let's talk about it for a second. Individuality, right? Individualism, whatever you want to call it. It's a term that's coined by many cultural commentators. But Tim Keller, Tim Keller is a pastor, author. He actually just passed away a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago. He would say this, that individualism in our culture is a very complex journey, but is a primarily Western culture thing. It's interesting. Tim Keller would look and say, in, in our cultural moment, individualism, that individual is king, is a Western culture thing that's actually been a journey that we've been on and has complexly built upon itself. Here's the reality based on individualism. Individualism isn't all bad. It's not all bad. He would say pre-World War II, there's a lot of really good things that cranked up inside of this sector of thinking. Human rights, political rights, and you could kind of build the list from there. But what took place, Tim Keller says, is post-World War II, the dial turned. And this understanding of individualism actually cranked up a notch, and he would say it started to be defined as expressive individualism. Post-World War II, a couple things happened, right? A couple things happened. The economy started to boom and get back to what it was pre the depression and even beyond that. There were some comfortability things that came into play, right? TVs replaced porches, cars led us to many of adventures, right? And all of a sudden, the cultural moment started to turn and expressive individualism started to take place. And there's another author by the name of Mark Sayers. He says, we currently live in a post-Christian culture, which don't let that scare you, right? We live in a post-Christian culture defined by three things. Let me list them off for you. It says, these beliefs are the primary beliefs of a post-Christian culture in what Tim Keller would call expressive individualism. 
The first one is this, the highest God is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. The highest God is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. The second thing is this, traditions, religions, wisdom, regulations, beliefs, and etc. that restrict this should be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Right? You've probably heard a lot of stories of people deconstructing their faith in the last several years, right? And as they deconstruct their faith, they're looking for who am I and what am I about? But thirdly, the world will inevitably improve, they would believe, as the scope of individual freedom grows. They would believe that the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. And here's the reality. Not everything that comes with individualism is bad. But there is an expressive individualism that our culture has turned, and it's the first wave. And you'll hear sayings like, you be you, or you find yourself, that have kind of taken over the cultural moments. And it is this find within yourself who you are, present that, and the freedom and happiness that comes with that is what it means to live life. The second one is spirituality. What's interesting is I think these things play together. Because when it comes to someone's spiritual journey, I think right now less people identify as religious and more people identify as spiritual. Less people identify as religious and more people identify as spiritual. There was a, a Barna study that they, through many generations, they kind of took stats and this is what the stats came out to. 75 to 80% of people, on average, believe there is a spiritual dimension and would like to grow spiritually. That is, as of 2023, a Barna research study says that 75 to 80% of Americans, Western culture, believe there is a spiritual dimension and they want to grow spiritually. Listen, that gives me hope. Right? We might be trending towards less religious or identifying as less religious, but at the same time, we're trending towards more of what does it look like to be spiritual and what does that mean? And how do we live inside of that? Because in our post-Christian culture, where individualism does reign king, simultaneously, spirituality will reign king also. They're trying to find themselves, find what they believe. And what happens is you mold the two. I have to find within myself my spiritual purpose and meaning and belief, and I have to figure out, and I don't want anybody else to tell me what it is. And that's generally the path that will be taken. Mark Sayers, the, the guy that I quoted, the pastor in Australia, says this post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst guilting or gutting it of the cost, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. So we'll take the fruits of Christianity without the truth of the fullness of the gospel that puts the cost and the restraints and the commitment of my individual will inside of it. So I'll take the joy, the peace, the happiness, the freedom without laying down my life simultaneously without laying down my life towards Jesus and towards others in the process. Here's the reality. Why are we talking about this, right? Because I just threw a bunch of different, you're like, what? It's Memorial Day weekend, Joel. I'm supposed to barbecue tomorrow. 
He just gave me a bunch of stats and quotes. What are we supposed to do with that, right? Here's what we're supposed to do with that. Our community, if we're just talking about Barberton as a community, 65% of people in our community identify as religiously unaffiliated. That's 16,000 people in our own community. If you are in a surrounding community, just, just kind of increase that by a number, right? It's probably in the same ballpark, 65%. Probably 65 to 70% of people that live around you, whether in Barberton or beyond, are probably religiously unaffiliated. But here's the reality. What gives me hope is this, is that that 65%, although they may be religiously unaffiliated for one reason or another, church doesn't, they just don't believe it, they've had a poor experience, whatever it may be, right, doesn't mean that the 65% are spiritually uninterested. It doesn't mean that they are not wanting to find the truth of what we would call the gospel in Jesus, they're just trying to figure it out on their own and they're trying to figure it out in their own way. And our job inside of this series is not to razz the culture and to point at the culture and say, stay far away from, right? Or, or look at the cultural moment and say, oh, I'm not so sure. We're gonna run over here and we're gonna do our holy huddle. That's not the point of this series. The point of this series is to say, what is the cultural story and how do we see so much better inside of God's story? Because there's people living inside of the world's story and they're lost and empty. And what God's story has to offer is a man named Jesus. And what we have to offer as followers of Christ is not calling out people, judging people, or making a social media rant, but pointing them to Jesus. That is the hope that we have and we have to offer our worlds. We have a better story. And so my job is not to sit upon individuality and spirituality and razz on it and why. Because there's been moments at my time and even now that I struggle with both of those things and I have questions in regard to those things. And I have to keep going back to Jesus. And my hope in this series is this. As Paul writes in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, it's not on the screen, but let me just read it to you. He's writing to the church in Colossae. He finishes with this. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Listen, I love where Paul finishes there. It is an encouragement to us as we navigate what the world's story is, which all of us at one time or another believed, or we lived, we found it to be empty, is that as we interact with people who Paul says are outsiders or who are lost, who are far from, that we would make the most of every opportunity with grace seasoned with salt so that they would be pointed to Jesus, that we would be wise in the way we would act towards them. My hope is this, is that inside of this series, which will be three weeks, we get to celebrate God's story, which ultimately plays out in the person of Jesus. And in the process, my prayer is for people in your life that don't know that story and their lives aren't connected to it, 
and that God would open up opportunities and he would remind us to be wise and gracious inside of them to give the most opportunity to share Jesus with them. To give the most opportunity to share the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus, what we have been offered and what we're living out, not to just call them out. That is why we're doing this series is because there's a story that's greater. There's a story that's worth living in. And there's a lot of people that don't know that or have been hurt by different things and our opportunity is ripe and the harvest is ready. So we're in a series. It's called Culture Clichés in the Story of God. We're gonna walk through three different cultural cliches and we're just going to name them and then we're going to see how the story of God is better and what the story of God has to say. And here's the challenge, right? Even if you've been a part of church for a long time, that you would ask the really hard questions also. Because I was studying for this and I was like, ooh, that hurt. And ooh, that didn't feel good. And oh, I'm not so sure, right? We can sit in here and we can think, well, that's for them out there, but it is just as much real here for us. And what I want to do is this. I want to pull us out of the wave pool for a minute, right? You're going to go back, you're going to check your social media, you're going to watch the TV show, you're going to watch whatever, you're going to see whatever, hear whatever, right? I want to pull us out of the wave pool so that we can clearly see what's happening in the wave pool. The best way for me to see where my brother and sister was in the wave pool was by stepping out of the wave pool, not just kind of swimming around in the wave pool, right? We're going to step out for a minute. We're going to say, what does Jesus have to say about this? What does he look like in the light of what we're navigating in this cultural moment? So where we're going to start today is this. Have you ever heard the statement, my God wouldn't? Have you heard that statement? My God wouldn't, right? This is a statement, if we were to be honest, whether you have said it or not, you've probably thought it. Or you've probably thought in the same thought process of it. Thought process of it. I think this statement is equally said amongst Christians as it is those who would say, I'm not a follower of Christ. This is a statement that over the last three years, I think culturally has ramped up and has been used, whether in social media or different conversational platforms. And often how we use this statement, if we were to be honest, right, is we use this in maybe one of three ways. We would say, my God wouldn't in a defensive way, right? We're in a conversation, we're like, my God wouldn't, right? My, my Jesus wouldn't do that. So it can be a defensive kind of barrier of I got to protect something or I got I to speak to something that feels really messy and really hard. Or it can be directed towards someone, Right? It can be just as much defensive as it is attacking. Well, my God wouldn't do that. I'm not sure what you believe. I'm not sure what you follow. I'm not sure what you would say. But my God wouldn't. Or it can be something of dismissive, right? It can be a dismissive thing. Well, I don't want to deal with the hard conversations. I don't want to deal with the messiness. I don't want to deal with those things. And so I'm going to use this statement as a way to kind of back away from it and to distance myself from that conversation. Whatever it may be, defensive, directed, or dismissive, that statement has gone around in numerous ways. My God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't say that. My God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. My God wouldn't want me not to fulfill my dreams. My God wouldn't condemn them or that or look down on this or that. Whatever it's been used or however we have used it, right, 
It is a culturally relevant conversation inside and outside of the church. I was sitting with my son on Friday. We were outside. We have this sandbox, which if you know anything about sandbox and toddlers, sand gets everywhere. Places you didn't realize it could get, it's there, right? We have more sand in the yard than we have in the sandbox, but that's irrelevant to the story. What's relevant to the story is my son loves dinosaurs, He loves dinosaurs, and I love that my son loves dinosaurs, and he's really into telling me all about dinosaurs. He watches the show Dinosaur Dan, so he learns stuff there. He's been to a dinosaur uh, natural history museum where dinosaur bones were at. He reads about dinosaurs. My son knows all this about dinosaurs. It's amazing. And so we're sitting there. I'm sitting by the sandbox. They're playing. He's doing his dinosaur thing, right? He's making dinosaur sand stuff, and he looks up to me, and he says, Daddy, like, yes, son. He's like, you know what? like what he's like I'm one of three dinosaur experts in the world I was like (laughs) I looked at him I'm like you gotta be kidding me and I get to sit in your presence and then he looks at me and he says daddy you want to know who the other two are and I'm like fill me in because if I know the other two then I know three of three dinosaur experts he looks at me and he says the other one one of them is JJ who goes here and attends here with his family He's an eight-year-old. And the third one is Jonah, who also attends here. And I was like, wow, I am leading a church filled with dinosaur experts. I was the proudest dad and pastor in that moment. And then he went on to tell me something about some dinosaur that he knew and that, that had this and that had that and all these things. And I was like, this is amazing, right? This, this is unreal, and yet, here's the reality, right? We laugh at that. It's cute. It's funny. He is more of an expert than I am about dinosaurs, right? The reality is this. Is he really an expert, or is he just telling me based off of things that he's kind of seen or kind of experienced, but he's actually been in the field of it? Has he actually studied it, actually jumped into it, right? And that's a lot of how we can interact with God, right? We can interact with God, and we can kind of create God in our own image based on my preference, my experiences, my pain, my politics, and that can be the basis, right? We can say that we're an expert of God. We know God, know exactly what he's like. My God wouldn't. I know what you're talking about. I know know my God. And we can Say that just like Corbin says he's an expert on dinosaurs. Because I watched the show a little bit. Because I experienced it a little bit here. Because I've done this a little bit here. And there's a lot of what we can do inside of this statement. This statement kind of draws out two different things for me. Right? My God wouldn't. And inside of my own life, I've done this. Right? I've had to process this. I start to define God. Right? I can start to define God. Right? So, so God becomes the God of, like I said, my preferences and my opinions, my, my, my pain and my experiences, which, which don't let me oversight that, right? Because you might be here and, and you've walked through some horrendous things, some, some untold things, some things that you, you yourself did not plan for or imagine, and, and it's been painful. And, and I'm not up here to say that shame on you, or why would you, or what's going on, but rather, as you process maybe those pain points, has it dictated how you view God? 
Some of us, maybe it's our experience with our fathers or our mothers. And you're talking about God as father? You'll have a unique lens. For some of us, it's been tragedy or suffering. And you're like, I'm not sure I can believe in a good God who would allow those things to happen. And so all of a sudden, it directs how we view God and we start to define God, right? For some of us, it is entertainment or politics. And that's what informs our understanding of God. What news channel I watch, what leader I follow, what person speaks into my life, what book I read, what podcast I listen to. And all of a sudden, I start to define God. And God starts to be defined in a very singular avenue that fits me, that sounds like me, that fits what I look like and what I like to do. And all of a sudden, we start to live inside of this individualistic spirituality where as long as I get to dictate that, and as long as I'm defining God, I am God. As long as I'm defining God, I am God. Right? My son, he's an expert on dinosaurs. He can define dinosaurs however he wants, and he ultimately can say, this is who I am. And we can do that with God. I define God how I want, and ultimately, if I'm defining God, who is really God of, the, of my life? Who, who's really God of my life if I'm defining him? And this has been the story, the trajectory of human history. If you look back at Genesis 1, something miraculous happens in verses 1 and 2. This is what happens. We would read this from Moses writing in Genesis, the creation story. Let me just stop here. I say this often, but I negated to say it early on. You don't have to agree with us to come here. You're welcome here. This is a conversation we want to open up. And I'd love the process, whatever this sparks inside of your life. We just want you to interact with it and to wrestle with it as I am. Like I present this and oftentimes I think people look at me and say, well, he's got it all figured out. He's presenting it. I wrestled with it all week. And I'd love to have conversations around what God's doing in your life. Genesis 1, creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right? It's a powerful story. We see God in the beginning creating everything that you and I see. God and his story was here first. And he introduced us to that by creating us into his creation and giving us role and responsibility with him in relationship. But Genesis 3, everything shifts. And I want you to lean into the verbiage that is shared here because I think it's important to where we're going. Genesis 3, verse 1 and then 4 and 5. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Listen, eyes up here. Satan is going after God first and foremost. He's going after what Adam and Eve believe about God. He's not going after do this, do that. He's going after questioning how they view God and what they believe about him in this. Because listen, Eve responds, 
said, not this tree, every other tree we can have, but not this tree. And then serpent said, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the reality. Satan's deception played into misplaced desires. Here's the reality. The biggest struggle, whether you are a follower of Christ or not, is this struggle and this pursuit and this desire to be like God. That, that is what Satan deceives them with. This pride of heart, sin, is putting myself in the seat where God should sit. I think it's fascinating. He uses the fruit of the tree, right? But the biggest thing that he wants them to trip up on is how they view God, how they define God, how they see God. Because in the beginning, God was. He created. He invited in. And in Genesis 3, well, could we actually fit that bill? And all of a sudden, they ate of the fruits, and human history has been on the same trajectory of trying to fill that seat of God in our own lives with ourselves or something else. And that has been the journey of human history. And that's why we're wrestling with this series. Because as we wrestle with this series, as I begin to understand the story of God, right, I start to see who God is. Who he is and what he's invited me into. Because I can live life with a lot of different views of God and them not being accurate. So today, what we're just going to drill into is this question. Who is God? Who is God? Which I only have so much time to answer this. So let me just preface it by saying I'm not going to get to everything. And I'm not going to be able to answer this question in full. Okay? We did a series back in 2021 called God Is. I would invite you to check out that series. Our next series that we're going to do here after this one is called Who Do You Say I Am? And it's a series out of Luke. I would challenge you to be a part of that summer series because we're going to try to wrestle with this question in full throughout those series. But today we're going to scratch the surface. If you want to turn to Exodus 34, we're going to turn to the most famous passage in Scripture, the most repeated passage in Scripture by Scripture, okay? And it is Moses talking to God and God talking to Moses. It is a fascinating passage, okay? So let me give you some background, and then we'll get to Exodus 4, or 34, 6 through 7. In Exodus 33, okay, in Exodus 33, Moses goes up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, because he's interceding for the Israelite people. The Israelite people, God's chosen people who were just rescued from Egypt, are not following God like they should be. They're not leaning into God like they should be. They are building idols. They built this golden calf instead of leaning into God, and they started to worship the golden calf instead. They started to complain, we want to be back in Egypt, right? We want all that comes with that. And so Moses in Exodus 34 goes up to the mountain to talk with God. Because Moses has that relationship, he's going to intercede for the people. And he cries out for the people. And Moses, what I love about Moses is he beckons and he calls out to God's faithfulness for the sake of the people. 
And what's interesting is this, is as he's beckoning that, he's interceding, right? God's faithfulness comes through. God rightfully so wants to just kind of get rid of them because they're not following me. They're not, they're not leaning into me. They're not leaning into what I have for them. It was like, whoa, 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 whoa. remember your faithfulness, right? And God has this relational conversation with Moses and then Moses asks for something very interesting. Moses says this after they have this interaction. Now show me your glory, right? Now show me your glory. Moses is asking to see the manifested glory of God, the weight of his glory, visibly seen, right? And we would believe God is the greatest being in the universe, created everything. He is love, he is peace, he is justice, he is mercy, that he is the one that interceded into the world, created everything, introduced humankind to it. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, He's ever present, and Moses wants to see his glory, visible glory. Can you imagine the weight of that conversation? Because then the Lord, we're going to look at this, God, in verse 19, says this, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence now, this is the context that our passage comes into. Because what God gives to Moses is, I will allow you to see my goodness, to hear my name, to understand who I am, and to experience me like no one on this earth has experienced me. And I want you to know who I am so that you can go back to your people and share that with them. Exodus 34 Six through seven, Moses goes back up to the mountainside and he has this moment, right? And here's the reality. Put yourself in the seats. We don't have any mountains around us. We don't interact with God like this. And yet, Moses has this moment unlike any of us could ever imagine and someday will experience and God shares his personal name with him. This is what Moses hears. And he passed the Lord in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I won't be able to cover this whole passage in detail, so go back to our series, God Is, where we do attempt to do that because it'll be worthwhile in light of this. The first thing I want you to see is this. God is personal and relational. God is personal and relational. When you think of God, who do you think of? Let's just start there. When you think of God, who do you think of? Can I, can I tell you a little bit of, of what I think of, right? If you're just kind of strip off the pastor title and Joel's talking to you, I can often think of God as the king, the creator of the universe, and I can interact with him as this distant being. 
that's out there in control. I trust him. I know that he's out there. I know that he controls everything. I know that he is God, but he's out there. And for some of us, that's how we know God. He's just the guy out there. He becomes this distant deity. He becomes this this king that sits on the throne, but we never get close to. For some of us, he becomes robotic, right? He's the religious robotic guy that we kind of speak to every once in a while. We do some things for, and then we go on and live life. I don't know what your view of God is. But when you think of God, what do you think of? Because we relate to God based on what we believe about God. We relate to God based on what we believe about God. If I believe that God is this distant deity, I will relate to him as such, right? If I believe that God's the big guy upstairs or the almighty dictator of the universe, I will relate to him as such. And that is about as far as the relationship will go inside of us. And for me, I've wrestled with that a lot. Maybe for you, that's been something you've wrestled with. We relate to God based on what we believe, and this is so important because I will only relate and be in relationship as much as I believe he desires that. What I believe about God will dictate what I believe about him wanting relationship with me and where my relationship with him goes. And for some of us, listen, that that is the thing. We would define ourselves as spiritual because we're trying to find something because I don't believe God wants to relate with me like that. I don't believe God wants to have a relationship with me like that. I don't believe that God is close enough, so I'm trying to figure it out in and of myself because I'm trying so hard to fill that hole. But I've only been told that God's distance. What I love about this passage is this. God is a relational being who wants to relate with us, respond to us, and be in relationship with us. This understanding of God as personal and relational starts with the title or the word, the Lord, which I can't get into all the Hebrew and all the different things, right? But the Lord, as you saw in that passage, is fully capitalized, L-O-R-D, fully capitalized. When you see that in scripture, that is God's personal name. The Lord in Hebrew is Yahweh which would have been an Israelite, the Israelite nation, God's chosen people, would have seen that as God's personal name and so revered it, they would not have said it out loud, Yahweh. And that's what he introduces to Moses. He says not, I'm the God, the God. He doesn't say, I'm the Lord, the Lord lowercase, which would have been a title, kind of a kingship title. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, my personal name. I've used this example before, right? I have kids that come out after service, and they're with their parents, and they'll come and they'll want to say something to me or show me something. They'll be like, Joel, 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 and their parents will be like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's Pastor Joel. And I always, I always look at the parents, and I always defer to the parents because that's just what you do, right? I always say, it's okay if you call me Joel. It's okay if they call me Joel, right? And you can make that decision based on how you want to navigate that with your kids. 
but there's a different connotation that goes with it, right? Pastor Joel, there's a title, but there's an office to that. There's, there's authority that comes with that, right? Just call me Joel, it's personal. There's a name, it can be relational. Joel, Ken, Ken, Joel, right? And God is literally coming down on a knee and he's talking to Moses and he's saying, my name though is Yahweh. And I want you to know me as such, not just the God, the God. Yes, I am that. Yes, I am the greatest being in all of the universe. I created the earth, not just the Lord, the Lord, which I am that. I'm the king of the universe. I have a kingdom. I am leading and ruling and in control. Yes, I want you to know me as that. But I also want you to know me at a deep relational level that only my personal name can give as such. God is yearning for that relationship with each and every one of us. I often can make God robotic instead of relational. I go through all the motions, do all the things, and I go on with my day. And he is crying out, I want you to know me at this level. Listen, that is where it starts for all of us. Because as you interact with God as relational and personal, he starts to reveal to you who he is inside of that. He wants to be relational with you because he wants, he knows you and he wants you to know him. Not just have assumptions about who he is and interacting as such. The second thing I would say is this. God is personal, relational. God is consistent. The name Yahweh, right? All of our names mean something. The name Yahweh means this, whatever I am, I will be. Which almost sounds riddle-ish, right? Whatever I am, I will be, which literally what God is saying is who I am is who I am. Like who I am is who I will always be, no matter what the situation or scenario is. I will be that. You can guarantee it. I am consistent and constant. And what's beautiful is this. He doesn't just in his name articulate that, but literally inside of repeating the Lord, the Lord, he is sharing that with us. He's repeating it, saying, this is so important, this is so relational, but I will be who I will be, and I want you to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's letting us know that he's consistent, not just in word, but in character. He's kind, loving, faithful, just, merciful, and that is who he is all the time. He doesn't just put it on one moment, take it off. And here's, here's where this one can get hard. Because I have a distinct perspective of life, and sometimes it feels like God's inconsistent inside of that. And maybe that's been your experience, right? Maybe that's been your experience where you look at life and you're like, but what about here, God? Why didn't you show up here, but you showed up here? Well, what do you think about that situation? Because you've you clearly say something about this situation, but not that one. But God, I, I thought we were in this together and I thought you were going to lead me into the career or the relationship or this moment. And it can feel like maybe for you that God is inconsistent. And so this statement, you're like, yeah, show me the money. Because you've had scenarios that 
don't add up. And here's what I would beg of you is to not just leave it as that. I'm not gonna stand up here and answer all the questions because I don't have all the answers. But I do know this. If God is who he says he is, and I've been invited into his story, then I, I better believe that he is leading and ruling and going before me in that story, and my perspective is very tiny comparative to his. And that I can trust him even when the circumstances don't match up. Even when the circumstance doesn't make sense because his character is consistent, even if the circumstance doesn't make me feel happy. His character will always be consistent even if the circumstance doesn't end up making me happy or going the route that I think it should go. And I think this is why he beckons at the beginning, have a relationship with me. Have a relationship with me. When I try to do this on my own and try to find it within myself, I'm the most inconsistent person in the world. We all are, right? And he says, I want you to know me, and as you get to know me, you will see that I am consistent, and I am connected, and I am the one that is going to lead you, and you need to trust me inside of that, but that will only be built off of a relationship with me. Trust me in that. Because lastly, God is compassionate. God is compassionate, which this could be another thing that you wrestle with. That's okay. You're welcome here. Because God is compassionate and gracious, and I love that God starts here. It says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. That is where he starts. This is what would beckon, the image that it would beckon is this, compassion in the Hebrew would beckon the image of being inside of your mother's womb. That inside of your mother's womb, there is comfort, there's a peace, there's an ability of safety. That's that word compassion. That it comforts inside of you, and it not only communicates imagery, but it's primarily communicating a feeling or emotion that God has towards us, like a mother has towards her child. Mother would have towards her child as the child comes from the womb into this earth. I want to protect. I want to care. I want to create safety. I want to speak into your life. And what's beautiful about God's compassion is it moves him into action, which is his grace. God's compassion is, it breaks his heart when he sees the brokenness that we are living in. And at the same time, he moves to comfort and care and save us inside of that. And it's only because of his grace, this move of favor that none of us deserve or could earn. What I love about God in this passage is it tells me he didn't move away from us, he moved in. That the God of the universe, as he's speaking to Moses, tells us something about his character, which tells us something about his heart, which is in and through the entirety of his story, even when it doesn't make sense. And there's a lot of parts of the Bible that I have questions about and that I wrestle with. 
And yet the story is consistent and it tells me that he moves in, he doesn't move away from us because his heart is broken because of our brokenness and his compassion moved him to the cross. Why? Because I I think God first and foremost sees our brokenness, what we would define as sin, living outside of his perfect design, people against people, groups against groups, nations against nations, and his heart would break to answer that brokenness. What he's telling us is this, is inside of that relationship, he wants to save us. He wants to move in with us. He wants to come towards us even when we run from him. And what's beautiful is this, is that God on the mountain with Moses is Jesus walking this earth. It's the same person. Because in John 1.14, we see a parallel passage, and then we'll be done. This is where John goes. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace, and truth. That is the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament passage, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. John does a marvelous job at articulating Old Testament truths inside of the story of Jesus, right? The word became flesh made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled with us. The tabernacle would have been where God's presence was. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, Moses is beckoning to see God's glory. And what John is saying is this, that we get to see God's glory at its finest, most exemplary imagery in Jesus. We get to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus, and he is full of grace and truth, which we talk oftentimes about the tension of grace and truth, right? That can be actually uh, interpreted inside of the Greek the same way that love, his loveliness and faithfulness in Exodus 34 is. And what John is saying is this, you want to know God, look to Jesus. Jesus is not just some prophet, he's not just some teacher, he's not just some guy that came onto the scene. He is the physical picture of the God of the universe he is the one. And when you look to Jesus, you see God. So when Jesus articulates throughout the entire book of John that me and the Father are one, what he is saying is literally that. That when you look to me, you will see God. The God on the mountain that's talking to Moses, saying, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving to the thousands, and is going to maintain justice. Jesus did that perfectly on this earth. And he came, yes, to save us, but he also came to lay down his kingdom and show us a better way and to demonstrate to us what it means that he is king. That he is coming. And the question, who is God? He, throughout his time on this earth, wanted to display that and make that known. What I love about it is this, that we don't just see that in the day-to-day, yes, we do. And, and here's the reality. What, 
if you've seen the TV show The Chosen, I think The Chosen is so well-received and so mind-blowing to people and to me because we're seeing in a full-length TV series this playing out to the best of our knowledge. I'm not saying, right? I'm not saying that they're, they don't know this or that. I'm just saying I think we're seeing it play out in that. And here's the reality God's compassion flowing through Jesus. And what I love about who Jesus is, is that he came and that was his goal. Is to show us who God is. And he did that not just in day to day, but he did that by going to the cross and rising again. That Jesus did on the cross for us what you and I could not do. If you notice at the end of Exodus 34, it talks about God forgiving to the thousands and then to the third and fourth generation by having justice, right? That he'll punish the guilty. And what I love about the story of Jesus is this, is that he at the cross upholds justice and mercy simultaneously. That God's character is consistent through the story of Jesus and through the story of him going to the cross and rising again. That on the cross, the person who's displaying God, who is God, walking on this earth, decides to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in that moment, takes upon the sin of the world he takes upon the sin of the world, identifying as a sinner and putting it to death. He has justice towards that so that he could extend mercy towards us. That our God is consistent. And our God is going to deal with the sinfulness of the world and the sinfulness inside of in individuals. And the first major step that he took was by sending Jesus by sending Jesus to die, he took our place, the place that you and I deserved, so that we could say yes to him and take the place that we don't deserve, which is a son or daughter of the king. And the reality is this, who is God? God is love, and he loves you. And what gets really fuzzy is our sinfulness usually dictates how we view God because sin separates us from him. Sin leads to fuzziness. Sin is an emptiness that I'm trying to fill within myself. And sin leads to destruction and ultimately separation from God. It's a brokenness. And Jesus rescued us, not by dismissing the brokenness, not by answering it away, but running into it. And he took the brokenness upon himself so that you and I could experience eternal life with him through his death and resurrection. He invites us to say yes to that. I want to invite the worship team to come up as I close. Because for some of us, right, we're here and we're exploring. Maybe you're at the end of yourself and you're exploring. You're like, I can't do this on my own. I've tried the individuality path. I've tried all the different things. I've tried to find myself. I can't find myself. I can't find what fills me. 
Maybe some of you, you're just like, I'm lost. I'm hurt. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. God, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about, but I'm just lost. Or for others of you, and this would be a little bit of my story. We are just really churched or really religious. And that can be just as dangerous because we can make a God inside of our own image too. Maybe not in the image of pain or politics or preference, but in the image of religious habit, of churched habit. We lose sight of who he is. And so here's my invitation to you. Just three things today. Just three. First is this. Grab a series guide in the back. If you do nothing else, grab a series guide. It literally details the story of God in 20 days. And so wrestle with that, see it, walk through it. My second invitation is grab a friend, a spouse, a relative, (coughs) someone you can walk through that with. And today, what I'm going to invite you to do this week is this. Ask yourself, what do I believe about God? Do it. I double dog dare you to do it. Here's why. I don't do it enough. I just live life and I define God as I go. Instead of allowing God to define me, shape me, save me, push me, invite me in. And so for some of us, it might be the challenge of actually asking, what do I believe about God? And do I actually live based on the fact that he saved me? Or am I trying to live by climbing up the mountain to him? I found it fascinating. Because for some of us, it just, maybe that question will open our hearts to a personal relationship and interaction with God. C.S. Lewis, he's a famous author. He wasn't always a Christian. Actually, later in life, he came to know Jesus. He said this, and I love it. Oh, sorry. I'll just read it. I'll just read it. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Here's here's what I love about that. It wasn't like this starry moment, this this blast of excitement. C.S. Lewis was like, I just came to the end of myself and I admitted God was God. And it kind of like took everything out of me. And yet, I knew he was God. And for some of us in this journey, maybe today, it's admitting God is God for the first time. And we'd love to have that conversation with you. So, Father, we thank you so much for who you are and all that you do. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for being so kind to us. Thank you for being compassionate and gracious, for taking our place, for leading us, for going before us. Father, thank you for being consistent and constant. And Father, we ask that you would, through your spirit, lead in and amongst us as we navigate the challenges of this conversation. We praise you, Father. We give all this to you. Thank you so much for joining us. 
If you would like to reach out and connect with us or hear more about Grace Church, you can head to barberton.gracechurches.org for more information. We meet in person at 1030 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 629 Wesleyan Ave in Barberton. Have a great day.